Hi, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the executive director of the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and the Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. I work for farmers who are growing a crop that is a healthy option for people, animals, and the planet. As a part of my job, I get to talk with some super interesting people who are doing some super interesting things on a regular basis. I learned so much from these conversations, and I thought you might enjoy them as well. Welcome to this episode of Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. Well, hi, and welcome to another episode of Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. Uh, my name is Nate Bloom. I'm the executive director of the Nebraska Grain Sorghum Board and the Nebraska Sorghum Producers Association. I'm coming at you actually from my office today. Normally, you've seen me in my home, um, but today is, uh, this episode is being done here at our office in downtown Lincoln, Nebraska. Um, so today, I'm, I'm really excited uh, to be joined by Ms. Cindy Allen. Uh, Cindy is the Assistant Secretary of State for the state of Nebraska. And we've actually done um, some work, although there's more to be done, um, with Cindy in the Secretary of State's office. And we hope uh, through that work uh, to get a sorghum-based food product in the USAID food basket. So that's kind of our connection there. Mm -hmm. I've been really impressed with working with Cindy. Uh, she's got just a wealth of knowledge, a wealth of experience. And I believe we're both LEED alums as well for you Nebraska LEED uh, uh, alumni association members. Um, you know, some overlap there. Uh, before we jump into Cindy's, uh, Cindy's comments here, um, I always want to start off now with what we call the Bagley Beg. And Cindy, if you don't know, um, I'm a huge Spider-Man nerd. And uh, my favorite Spider-Man comic book artist of all time is Mark Bagley. I uh, grew up with Mark's work in the 90s. He's still drawing today. And I really, really hope one of these days uh, Mark will notice this. And we can not only get him on the podcast, uh, but also that he'll do like a comic book cover with Sergeant Sorghum. I think that would be super, super cool um, since, you know, this is Sergeant Sorghum and his amazing friends. An homage to the 1980s uh, Spider-Man cartoon. So anyway, now that we got the Bagley bag out of the way, um, Cindy, tell us a little bit about yourself. Uh, you're, you're from Nebraska originally. You ranch out west. Is that right? No, I'm not actually from, from Nebraska originally. Um, I moved, uh, I'm from, I was born in Wisconsin, and uh, I lived north of Chicago for a long time, and then um, uh, had some military experience in Germany. My father lived in Nebraska, and um, when I was moving back to the U.S. from Germany after living there for three years, um, I was waiting for all the household goods, you know, your clothes, your furniture, your car, you know, all the things that are essential to living independently. Um, while I was waiting, I moved to Nebraska with my father and seven children. And um, I thought, you know, this is a good spot to raise children because, you know, we're getting out of the military. And, and I thought, this is, this is a great spot. And uh, so I decided to stay. Found a place uh, just outside of Kearney and rented it, moved into it. Um, was a single parent at the time. And then I met a farmer and uh, he's adopted all my children and it's, it's history uh, since then. So I've been in Nebraska, um, not all my life, but uh, I got here as fast as I could. Uh, it's amazing. It's amazing how many people and folks who are outside Nebraska don't realize this, but um, you know, we have Offutt Air Force Base in the mm -hmm. Bellevue, Omaha area. 
And uh, the number of military retirees we have in the state is astounding. And that's because when people get stationed at Offutt, um, you know, what they, they tend to find is that, wow, it's kind of a surprise. It's a great place to live, great place to raise a family. The schools are excellent. Um, in fact, when I worked for, uh, for Congressman Fortenberry before I was in this role, uh, and Offutt was in our district, one thing that we would hear a lot from, uh, from Air Force personnel uh, that had children was, you know, when they'd come here, the first thing, the first question they would ask is, where are the private schools? Mm -hmm. um, and what they find really quickly is that the public schools are actually really good here in Nebraska. Mm -hmm. And that was just astounding to them. So I think that's, you know, kind of a feather in the cap for our state. It really is. Um, you know, I, I was going to return back to a suburb outside of Chicago coming from Germany. And uh, I, I did land in O'Hare, you know, after traveling <laughs> on the airplane with, with that many kids um, by myself. And, and I was tired and, and uh, I thought, okay, I'm just going to go back to where I'm familiar and uh, stay in Illinois, north of Chicago. But then I looked around and I thought, you know, maybe this isn't the best place. Um, people looked really stressed. They were in a hurry. I used to work downtown Chicago. Um, and, and I thought, uh, no, and came out, you know, to Nebraska, and that's when I found my home. So I do, I love the state. Um, it was a choice to be here. It's, it's a choice to raise my children here. It's the best state to raise a family in. Um, the schools are excellent. There's small schools, you know, they're limited in the class size, which is really great. So, uh, you know, it, it has paid off. My, my daughters have married farmers and um, they, they live a really good life. And the good life in Nebraska is true. And they live a good life and they're raising their children and in the same way. So glad I'm here. What did, what did you do? Sorry, I'm sorry. Go ahead. I, I'm Go a ahead. chronic interrupter, Cindy. I'm so sorry. Yeah, yeah. No Everybody problem. watching at home is going to be like that <laughs> jerk. He can't keep his mouth shut. Uh, what did you do in the military? Uh, it was with the... Um, the 101st Airborne and, um, you know, out of Fort Bragg, uh, North Carolina. Um, the 101st Airborne, the 82nd Airborne is really what's known. Uh, they're well known. Uh, the 101st Airborne are similar to the 82nd. And uh, there, was a, there was a time when I, when I didn't ever expect to be moving overseas. But uh, Desert Storm and Desert Shield was going on. And uh, we had been... Uh, deployed uh, to their that region and actually moved to TDY to Germany and so worked in supplies um, all the military supplies that went through uh, uh, that's basically you know was logistics logistics mm -hmm. I guess you can say that that'll be a civilian term logistics logistics are important and I think more important than people realize um, my oldest daughter actually is a National Guard member, and uh, the unit that she's in is logistics as well. And uh, mm -hmm. boy, when you when you think about, uh, and I'm kind of a history nerd, um, but when you think about uh, wars that are won and lost, it's you know the battlefield is only part of it. Mm -hmm. um, granted, an important part, but if you can't feed your army or supply your army, um, you know they march on their belly. Uh, Absolutely, yeah. That's a big, big part. Yeah, everything comes from Germany. Yeah, it was, it's, uh, we were locked down, you know, there was, there were some terrorist things going on at that time even, and uh, everything went through Germany, and there was a lot of guys that 
had been burned because the oil fields were burning and they all came to Germany to the hospitals there. So we really saw, we really saw that time up front. And then when the Berlin Wall came down, we had lived there at that time too, um, had been into East Berlin before the wall came down and then the wall came down. And uh, so you saw the East German people flooding into West Germany, these little cars had kind of they all packed themselves in there and they were big enough to fit in a dumpster or small enough to fit in a dumpster and they were all on the autobahn um, but it was a historical time i'm glad i was there up front and center and uh it, it gave me a lot of you know background into to the world at large and uh gave me a global outlook you know ever since that time so, i'd love to hear more about what it was like to be in Berlin when the wall fell. And the other question I have for you is, have you ever considered um, recording an interview for the Veterans History Project at the Library of Congress? Um, because if yeah, you- that's a good idea. I'd yeah. love to do one for you. Um, mm -hmm. We, for those of you at home, uh, back when I worked for the Congressman's office, uh, I was put in charge of doing these Veterans History uh, Project interviews. And uh, it's something I've just kept doing. Uh, haven't done many of them lately. Uh, mm -hmm. Through our Sorghum Cares initiative, we actually do that on through the association side. Um, uh, as they come up, I'd love to do one for you. I always hand deliver them to the Library of Congress then when I'm in D.C. So sure, that would be fun. You know, I, I looked over the wall, and uh, you know, one day, you know, the two houses were neighbors, and the next day there was a wall between them. So uh, it was it's, it was really um, actually. A, very few people have been able to experience what it was like between West Berlin and East Berlin and East Germany, you know, and, and uh, the difference because I've gone back the lead. Um, I was in lead 24 and when we went back to uh, Russia in, you know, through lead, I remembered East Germany and it was like, it was almost like Vegas, you know, before that it was downtrodden and oppressed and brown and you know, the people were oppressed and there were, you know, Russian soldiers everywhere watching everything. Um, you know, we had embassy immunity at that point. And um, it was it was really interesting change. So I was able to see before and after, which was very cool also. Yeah, good time, good, good memories and uh, very historical time for our nation. When the wall came down then, was it like one big party in Berlin or what was, <laughs> was it more relief or was it more jubilation? It was, um, it was celebration when the wall came down. Uh, they, you know, you saw families united that had been separated. Um, the interesting thing was the economy because the, the West, the German mark, the East German mark is like, um, you know, they say that you can tell the, the strength of the currency or, you know, or the value of the currency by the weight. And uh, the East German mark was lighter than monopoly money. It was just coins and it was so light and the exchange rate was, was really horrendous between the dollar and the East German mark. And then when the wall came down, West Germany had to absorb that economy. And uh, so there, there, was a, there, there was jubilation, but it, it was also a little bit pensive, you know, as far as, well, where's our economy gonna go? Can we absorb? You know, this the country that, you know, we were split in half after the war and we absorbed that. Um, there was a lot of history as far as East Germany also, you know, we, we saw bombed out places that had never been repaired. 
uh, from World War II. We saw the place where Hitler hid um, during that war and um, all the cathedrals were boarded up. So there had to be a lot of change also. Um, initially, you know, there was great celebration and then the reality of bringing East Germany into, into the, you know, 21st century kind of hit because they were way behind in every way. They were just way behind. Um, so uh, that, that came, that followed, they followed the, the celebration, the reality of, of uniting East and West Germany again. You know, a modern analogy would be the Korean Peninsula. And, you know, um, I read uh, not too long ago, I guess, maybe a couple of years ago, I guess, um, you know, a lot of South Koreans who are young, uh, they don't want reunification with North Korea um, because of all the issues, both economic um, and then also cultural and, and kind of re-education re uh, from what's happened uh, to the population under the Kim regime. Um, you know, there's that big question in South Korea of, you know, how do we, if we were to reunite, yeah. we actually do it. Um, you know, that's something that people don't think about. Everybody says, well, you know, it's great when families get to come back together. And of course it is. Um, but the reality is there's a whole host of other things that comes with that, especially when there's such a large disparity between two neighbors like that. That is true. It is very true. And, and you know, it's a whole culture that um, is, is that you have to um, think about, you know, between people who have lived under communist rule and their work ethic, um, their skills, what, what they're able to buy, you know, in, in East Germany at that time, if you wanted a car, it took seven years to get it because maybe that year the bumpers were manufactured and then the next year maybe you know the doors were manufactured and it, it was a cash it was all cash you know there wasn't credit and you were used to you know being watched you were constantly watched your moves were um i went through the eastern corridor into west berlin and you know we went through the checkpoints and there were um, towers stationed along the way. You weren't allowed to get off that road. Um, there were towers stationed along the way that monitored your time. And if you were late, you know, going through one of those checkpoints through East Germany to West Berlin, um, you know, you were called, you were arrested. <laughs> I mean, it was the, it was authoritarian. You know, I mean, you had you you were under authority, legitimate authority, when you were in East Germany at that point. Um, so it was really interesting, you know, the wall was around West Berlin. Um, and so West Berlin was the only free part of East Germany was West Berlin. Mm -hmm. So yeah, it was very interesting. It was very interesting. You don't realize the culture shock when people suddenly have freedom and, um, and they're looking around at everything that, that they don't have. And even technology was ahead, you know, we, in East Berlin, we looked in some of the stores and you remember those portable transistor radios, you know, and we have internet, you know, and uh, which was, I'm sure was crazy awakening for the people of East Germany to see what the rest of the world really looked at like. And I think that's probably what North and South Korea, I think is very similar. Um, maybe someday they'll unite, I don't know, but it's a, it's a different culture that the, that the North Koreans will have to face um, when, if they ever do unite or, you know, when, when they come into another country and they see the freedoms that are there and, and the uh, economy that has been formed and the way people live, just lifestyles, work ethics, skills, schools, it's all different.
it's all different. And you just don't really think about that part at all. But it was a happy reunion. And uh, Germany is thriving very well. They're pretty much leaving the EU in every way. Um, and, uh, and, and I'm glad for them. I'm glad that they worked that all out. Well, that's remarkable. Actually, I had no idea that you had served in Germany, especially during that time. Mm-hmm. That's super cool. I, mm-hmm. I do a veterans history project interview with you um, when we get a chance. That would be that would be super cool. And I always make a copy for the library and then also a copy for the family as well. So it's something that you guys have. Um, although they do eventually get those up on the internet so they can be searchable, uh, which is pretty cool. So if you if you're watching at home and you don't know anything about the veterans history project, you should definitely check it out. Um, I will. I'll Google that. <laughs> the most interesting interview I ever did actually was not a you know blood and guts battle interview. It was uh, actually with an accountant. Um, he was doing payroll uh, a couple miles away from the Battle of the Bulge. And oh, um, when they went into Germany, they were stationed, uh, his unit was stationed in the Argentinian embassy. And I can't remember which city they were in, Leipzig maybe. Um, but, uh, you know, the Argent- Argentina was a, an ally of of the Nazi regime. And so he had boxes and boxes of memorabilia that they had taken from the Argentinian embassy. It was fascinating, just fascinating. So. It's interesting, um, you know, when you look at the different governments and, and working in the different uh, types of leadership and types of governments in different countries, you know, for instance, we I did go on the trade mission uh, during Governor Heidemann's uh, time in office to Cuba. And, um, you know, again, you know, that was it's a communist government. Fidel Castro was under Fidel Castro at the time, you know, and, uh, or, or anywhere in Africa, you know, where uh, in Congo, it was a militia government. And, um, you know, how oppressive that can actually be. Uh, we don't really understand the kind of corruption that can go on, you know, because we, we have a, uh, so much freedom here in our government. You know, we look at our government and, and we don't trust our politicians. Um, and I'm sure there's a lot of, you know, there is some corruption, you know, in our own government. But I'll tell you, it is nothing compared to, speaking, when you see some of the other authoritarian or communists or dictators or uh, militia governments. It's completely different uh, lifestyle in those countries. Um, comparatively speaking to ours, you know, where they're begging for their kids to go to school and, and we take our education for granted. Um, it, you really, you really begin to appreciate where you're at in the country that we have right now, um, that you're in it and you're able to raise your children here too, um, and all the privileges that we actually have. I recommend travel, um, international travel to anybody who can do it, uh, especially Americans, because um, you know, our, we're very, uh, I don't know, well, I'm going to coin a new term. We're very Amerocentric, <laughs> right? I mean, uh, most Americans think that the world absolutely revolves around what happens here, and it's just not true. Um, you know, there's so much uh, time and effort wasted on uh, what uh, the rest of the world thinks of us, and the reality is that a lot of places I've traveled, they don't think of us hardly at all. They've got their own stuff they're dealing with. Um, and it does help you to get some perspective. You know, uh, whenever I think I'm having a bad day, I just remember I didn't have to walk a mile to the river to get some dirty water to cook with, mm-hmm. you know, and carry the bucket back. That's so true. I, I, the funny part is that 
you know, you say that they don't think about us. I was in Uganda in, in a really remote place um, among farms in, in Uganda. And, uh, and they do, I mean, they're, they haven't even come into the industrialized age yet. They say the rule of Idi, that Ugandans will cry for a thousand years after the rule of Idi Amin. And, you know, they, they still live in grass huts. I mean, it's for real. And they um, make their own charcoal and they cook their meals over the charcoal that they've made. But in the midst of that, there was a shop out there, which, which they resell a lot of what we donate. They, they get, and then they resell it. That's their store. And um, there's a cutout of Britney Spears. And I have no idea. I had no idea where they got that, you know, but they cut out for sale of Britney Spears in their shop. And I thought that was just so hilarious. But, uh, and there was kind of used Nike duffel bags there, you know, those sports bags. And, you know, I've, I've learned that whatever we donate, you know, make sure that it's something that is good because they don't have the wherewithal to fix a zipper or add buttons or clean your stain you know, um, that you decided that you didn't want to throw it away in a dumpster, so you gave it to Goodwill, because that's what's in those countries. And, um, you know, it, it's it's really crazy when you see, you know, I saw a Sears service shirt that this boy was wearing, you know, the guy must have quit Sears or something, you know, in the service department and donated his shirt. And uh, this little boy had on this oversized Sears service, service shirt with the guy's name on it. I bet he doesn't even know it's there. <laughs> but anyway, it's really interesting how we do impact the rest of the world um, in so many different ways that, that we don't think about on a daily basis. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's something to be said, not just for donating things. And, you know, that's, that's good. I mean, those are things that people need, obviously. But there's something to be said for time, um, you know, to be able to go and actually do something. In fact, I... I almost hate to travel if I don't have a purpose for going there. I don't like to just lounge. Um, some of my favorite trips have been when I've actually been uh, immersed in the in the population and and working on something, whether it's you know helping build a church or dig a well or just build a house. And um, it's uh, really impactful. And what you find is, at least what I find, is generally speaking, people are people wherever you go, right? Mm -hmm kind of the basic things. We, we want to have healthy and safe food. We want to have uh, an environment that um, our kids can can prosper in and do better than we did. Um, you know, we generally kind of want to be left alone and at peace to do our business. Um, you know, th these are universal truths. And we might disagree about how we get to them, um, and that's okay. Uh, but you know, generally speaking, people are people. And that's the most interesting part, part, part about travel, actually, for me is so. They are, and they love their families, and they take care of their families and their children and, and their grandparents, and they, you know, um, one generation after the next uh, teaches the next generation. That's what I love about agriculture is that you have, you have a legacy, you know, between one generation to the next, the next on the land, and um, you're able to train, you know, you're able to train a child up in the way they should go, and um you see this on the farm and uh, you don't see that worldwide. Uh, you know, they, it's not in every country like that where one generation is able to train the next generation how to grow food, um, the best way to grow food and, and care for the land. 
um, at the same time so that it can be passed on. Um, I, I really love that about the ag industry is that we take a, a great deal of pride in um, conserving our land, um, growing, growing the best produce, the best commodities that we know how, and, um, and we have precision agriculture. And it, it's, really, um, it's really something that is not in the rest of the world. Uh, it might be in Europe, but you know, that's a small part of the, of the globe. But um, you know, we, we have that in, in agriculture here. And I always thought that agriculture was also the least political. Um, I think it's become more political now, but I always thought it was the least political um, industry that you could really get into. And in trade, you know, you, you kind of have to stay under the politics um, that are that exist. You know, and it, it might be a little bit difficult from time to time because of tariffs or non-tariff barriers, um, customs, you know, those type, type of things. But you work together and establish these relationships um, on trade missions. And really that's the purpose, is that you go in at a government level, um, you discuss some policy, you know, how it affects you, you know, off the combine, you know, how it affects you right there in your own place, a grassroots level. And uh, you're able to uh, meet people at a government level that can uh, look at that, perhaps make the changes uh, necessary for the free, free flow of, of uh, goods between countries. So those trade missions are really important, but it's also, as you mentioned, just as important to understand the culture. You know, and that takes some preparation before you go, uh, some research before you go. Um, and then when you get there, it, it's good to hit the ground running and you have, you might have meeting after meeting after meeting, you know, but you've got to step back a little bit and um, get out on the street and, um, and meet the people and, and work within the economy and see what, you know, see what the people think and see, you know, what, what their demands are. And uh, that gives you some insight, you know, in as far as trade relations go and being able to communicate um, to, uh, to, better, um, to better facilitate the flow of commodities between Nebraska and um, in other countries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I don't know if you found this to be true, but one of my favorite things to do when I travel to another country, especially a non-English speaking country, um, I think it shows incredible respect to try to learn at least part of the language before you go. Um, because I think even if you get it wrong, you show them that you don't, ex you're not just expecting them to be able to speak to you in English, right? You're at least trying to meet them halfway. Um, so most of the countries I've traveled to are, are Spanish speaking. Um, and so it's, you know, fairly easy. I know if a little bit of Spanish, I can, I can get around. Um, I can order breakfast and, you know, <laughs> uh, but when I went to, I was in Hanoi in 2019 with the governor's trade mission here. And, uh, I had worked on some Vietnamese, which is very, very different, obviously. And I remember I got in the taxi, uh, to go from the airport to the hotel. And I thought I was going to wow the taxi driver with my little Vietnamese I had learned. And so I, I'm reading it off the paper, right? I'm trying to say <laughs> He just looks at me, looks looks back, looks at me in perfect English and says, what? <laughs> I said, I work on my Vietnamese. And he looked at me and said, keep working. <laughs> <laughs> that is funny. There, there was, uh, you know, you can use Spanish. You can learn Spanish with Dora the Explorer, you know, and, and um, I... 
I was talking with uh, a lady, uh, I think it was in, in Argentina or Brazil. And I said, how did you learn to speak English so well? And, uh, and she said, you know, I, I just watched Dora the Explorer and, and I had a closed caption and she said, that's how I learned English, you know, so there's a lot of ways, but you're right, you know, it, it is important to at least know a little bit, you know, instead of pulling up a picture of a toilet, you know, say, where is this, um, know a little bit, but, and not assume that every country speaks English because they don't. Um, developing countries, you know, maybe the younger generation, you know, they will have some English, but um, many times they don't. And I thought I would make a tidbit last list of things to remember when you travel. Um, one is remember to take the car to the hotel that you're at, because chances are the taxi driver doesn't speak English and you'll be out somewhere that you don't even know where you're at, you know, because they think they are taking you to the right place and they're not. Another is if you go to Africa, bring a washcloth with you, you know, and, and some of those things, um, other than, you know, the, the converters for electricity, you know, you always want to check up on that and what you should, what, what vaccinations you should get when you go into some of those developing countries, you know, because, you know, polio is alive and well, and so is uh, yellow fever, and so is typhoid and diphtheria. They're all there. They're you know, in, in the U.S., um, we don't face those things because our children are vaccinated. But when you go into those countries, um, it's good to look up, you know, what you need as far as vaccinations before you go, um, because you don't want to get sick in those countries at all, um, in some of them anyway. Others have pretty good medical services. So are you, uh, are you familiar with Douglas Adams, the author of Douglas Adams? I don't know. I don't think so. Um, tell me about it. Well, your washcloth comment re reminded me. So if anybody's familiar with Douglas Adams, he's, he wrote The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. Yeah, that'd be fun. The, the, two, rule, the two rules, as I recall them, uh, for The Hitchhiker's uh, Guide to the Galaxy was one, don't panic. Um, and two, don't forget your towel. Always have a towel. <laughs> <laughs> this, this is true. <laughs> he was right about that. Right. Well, hey, I want to jump in. So we've spent quite yeah. a bit of time, just natural conversation, which is what's great about this podcast. Uh -huh. I think that's that's the kind of the fun thing. But tell us a little bit about your work with the Secretary of State's office. You have a very important role. Um, and you know, tell us a little bit about that. And then I also want to touch on uh, some of your work uh, in developing countries in regard to refugee settlements and things. Well, um, one, of, one of the roles of, for the Secretary of State of Nebraska is that they are the chief protocol officer of the state. And it's, it's a lot like the, the US Secretary of State. Um, the Secretary Evident is responsible for uh, commerce, education and culture around the world. And um, it's an it's a area that, um, that I think that former Secretary of State John Gale, you know, he did a lot of work with, in China um, in some of the Asian countries. Uh, and, and then, you know, the, the Governor Heinemann came and he did a lot of work around the globe and uh, Secretary Evident was elected and, and that's what really illuminated him about this particular job position was um, to be able to represent Nebraska around the world. So um, I, had, I had been with the Nebraska Driving Commission and then had, had went on numerous train missions 
um, I think probably over 20 train missions with the, um, the uh, national um, Nebraska, or not Nebraska, but driving council. Uh, so I had some experience in international trade. I was also with the LEAD program, you know, and I had my master's degree uh, in political management and, and, and lived overseas, you know, lived in Germany. And of course, when you live there, you can drive to the next country. When you live here, you're not to the airport yet, you know. Mm -hmm. But um, so I had that background and um, spoke with Secretary Evident, and he decided that he wanted to expand that portfolio in the office. And um, he asked if I would come to Lincoln and uh, work for him in the Secretary of State's office. And of course, I accepted. And, um, and the rest is, is really history. Uh, so here I am. You know, I do drive home on weekends back out to Western Nebraska and um, find my soul again. Um, it's, a, it's so beautiful. I can, I can look at the sky and see all the stars and hear from my apartment. I, I don't do that, not enough anyway. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah. Uh, COVID has kind of put a damper on some of that international travel. I know we're hoping um, to get back onto some airplanes here this year, um, knock on wood. Mm -hmm. You and I have been working on, um, speaking of, of the global stage um, and international sustainability and food systems and things like that, uh, you and I have been working a little bit also on this UN uh, Food Systems Summit, which is going to happen in New York, uh, tentatively in New York in September of this year. And, and uh, we're actually right now in the process of uh, coordinating a, uh, a roundtable discussion that'll um, highlight Nebraska on that global platform, uh, you know, as, as part of an independent uh, summit dialogue. Uh, so thanks for being a part of that. I'm really excited to see where that goes. We're just waiting now on some participants. But for those of you at home, it's uh, scheduled for June 7th uh, from 3 to 5, and we'll have that up on social media and things like that. Um, but uh, the UN Secretary General really wants to make sustainability and environmental uh, change uh, the cornerstone of the 2030 UN agenda. And we're wanting to do a really good job of not only promoting Nebraska, but agriculture in general and technology in agriculture, which we think is really important. And um, a lot of countries that are in the developing world, uh, you know, they're, they're in a position where they're going to be choosing between uh, agricultural philosophies. Are they going to go anti-technology like much of Europe has gone? Um, or are they, you know, going to embrace technology like the Western Hemisphere has? Which, by the way, it's not just the United States. It's countries like Brazil and Argentina and places like that, too, that also embrace ag technology. Um, and it's important to remember that farmers are the original stewards, right? I mean... Their legacy, their family history, everything um, it depends on them being good stewards of the land. So, you know, the original conservationist is the Nebraska farmer. Absolutely. And, it, you know, it's important that we get our story out like that. Um, the UN, UN uh, Food Summit is, I mean, you have put together a high-level panel. And um, that's going to be a discussion that is going to be really interesting that I think a lot of people will want to hear and want to listen to. Uh, very informative. Um, these are, you've got a powerhouse group coming on for that UN Food Summit. There's a couple other things that I'm working on um, through the Secretary of State's office that, uh, that are really cool. Um, one is that in the, the World Expo is, is every five years. 
it's usually in years ending in zero or ending in five. Well, you, well COVID um, didn't allow it in 2020. Uh, and it was in Dubai, in the UAE, in Dubai. So they're having it this year. Um, it begins in October and it goes six months into March. The next one will be five years from now in Tokyo. So this is, a, this is kind of a big deal um, to have the World Expo in Dubai this year. And um, the state of Nebraska, and I've been working with the U.S. Embassy in Dubai, the state of Nebraska is one of five states that will be showcased in the USA Pavilion, which is, has been completed. Um, we'll be in Exhibit 6 out of eight. There's eight exhibits. We'll be in Exhibit 6 in the USA Pavilion. They have 22,000 people participate a day um, going through the World Expo. There's 192 pavilions uh, representing 192 countries at the World Expo. But the, what the really cool part is that golf food um, is in Dubai. It's one of the largest food shows in the world also. They attract uh, Africa, they attract China, they attract an equal number of countries into the golf food show. And um, we have, we have, I have reserved uh, a VIP room at the World Expo. It will be a day in Nebraska and in the evening reception, it will be Taste in Nebraska, February 12th, right before the Golf Food Show, which is February 13th to the 17th. And hopefully we'll have some exhibitors uh, from Nebraska in that Golf Food Show as well. So we're, I'm organizing that right now where you know Nebraska showcased in the USA Pavilion. And then also February 12th will be a day in Nebraska. Um, the embassy will assist in sending out invitations um, to targeted buyers, a list of people in the Middle East, Europe, Africa, China, Asia countries um, to come and see Nebraska Day. And then there'll be a taste in Nebraska. And then of those who want to have exhibits, um, booths basically at the golf food show, uh, the next day the golf food show starts and uh, we can segue into the golf food show as well. So that's really exciting. Um, I, I can't wait to do that. It'll be February, 2022, but our video um, that, I, that we're, you know, have just got the um, uh, requirements for a video for exhibit six in the USA Pavilion. We're working on that right now. So right now that's what I'm doing. And then February, uh, hopefully we'll have a delegation with the Secretary of State uh, to the USA Pavilion and also Golf Food Show. So that's one of, one of my projects. Um, sounds like I need to. Uh, sounds like I need to start thinking about going. I think so. <laughs> um, you know, when I'm thinking of trade, uh, and actually, there's a show we're looking at in Toulouse, France, here in October of this year, uh, mm -hmm. and it's the third uh, third European Sorghum Congress, is what it's called. Mm. And um, I'm not looking for the Europeans to buy sorghum from us necessarily. I want to go over there um, because there's going to be a lot of processors at the show. And I want to convince them why they should have an operation in Nebraska. Because um, what we're trying to do in particular, and folks at home probably already heard me say this on other, other podcasts, but um, we're, we're trying to make Nebraska be the hub for the domestic uh, market for value-added processing of goods. And it makes sense. I mean, Nebraska is a great location, um, you know, strategically. And if you can finish processing proximate to the production of the crop, then you've decreased your supply line. Um, and you're only two and a half days by truck from anywhere in the continental U.S., uh, you know, for, uh, 
uh, for getting that on the grocery store shelves. Plus, you got great access to rail and stuff too from here. So, I mean, it just makes a lot of sense uh, to to do that. So, I'm yeah. at, when I think of trade, I'm, I'm thinking more of how do we get that value added here so that we're not just shipping out raw commodity. Um, that's what I want. Mm-hmm. So that's that's interesting. I'll have to we'll have to stay in touch, obviously, about the Dubai um, thing. We're working on budget right now, as a matter of fact. So now's a good time to be talking about those things. Sure, you'll be getting a, a letter in the mail <laughs> sure. uh, invitation um, as soon as we kind of outline the expenses and and I hope to you know we we spoke about the culture you know uh, before where you're at um, so I hope to have some events you know uh, for the people who go so that you're not just you know running and shaking hands but you're actually you know immersed into the culture a little bit more you know so I would like to I would like to organize some of those events also. Um, when I was in Dubai, it was really cool because I went out and, and we went into the desert and dune busting in the desert, you know, like a row, a row of black SUVs in the desert going through those huge mountainous dunes of sand. And then you end up out at a fort, you know, with a well and uh, a show and, um, you know, so uh, belly dancing kind of, you know, it's the Middle East. So um, I really, camels, you know, are out there. It's, you're out there in the desert. Yeah, know? I'm just going to throw this idea out at you because I think, I think that uh, one of the things you can do is you can base jump off the Burj Khalifa. Yes, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to group I organize that for you, Nate? <laughs> 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 yeah, you can see the islands too, you know, the, the universe. You know, where you made all the smaller islands, you can see it um, from the shore. And then, you know, the palm leaf where that you can see from space. Um, we, you can go out on that palm leaf on a rail or, you know, the Hotel Atlantis is at the end of that palm leaf, which is very cool. And then, of course, they also have the, the ski mountain in the center of their mall. I guess there's two runs um, that you can go down and you can ski Dubai if you wanted to, but um, it's gonna be really an exciting time. I can't wait to see that all come together and come to fruition. It'll be, I think it'll be a really, really good um, exposure for Nebraska into, into that many countries at one time is phenomenal. Right. And, and um, that many visitors from all over the world. I mean, not just the number of countries that are, will have a presence there, but the, the people um, that come from all over the world to go to a world expo. Um, we talk about the fun things that happen, you know, culturally when you're experiencing a country, but I want folks at, at home to remember that, I mean, these are work trips. I mean, yeah. boy, yeah. when you go to a conference internationally, um, you're exhausted by the time you're done. And you are up early in the morning and you're done late, late at night. And then you get back up in the morning and you do it again. Yep. And, and you, and you, you are, and, and it requires preparation. You know, you, uh, it requires preparation as far as who you're meeting, who they are, uh, w- what, what our needs are, um, and being able to communicate those effectively in the, in the window of time that you have. Um, this is true. It is, it is a working. And when you come back from any kind of train mission, it's exhausting. It takes several weeks just to recover because it is exhausting. It's morning to night, morning, and then the next day, and then the next day. So you are right about this, you know, and you meet a lot of people in a short period of time, 
Um, you have to be quick on your feet, you know, and you have to be able to process a lot of information. Um, well, it's mentally exhausting. It's mentally exhausting, especially when you're trying to communicate across a language barrier. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, when you're using a translator, that's a whole art all by itself. Yeah. You know, it's using a translator. Um, you know, that, um, that alone is a learning curve when you're on these train missions because you have a translator and you have to effectively communicate um, a policy, a lot of policy through a translator um, to someone who's in that government, you know, and, and you do, you meet the prime ministers, you, you meet ministers of agriculture, you, you do meet top level people um, that, you're, that you're bringing your message to, it's the right place to go the right person to talk to so you need to understand you know your subject and um and that that takes work beforehand and it takes follow-up afterwards too well the the notion of travel to most people is i mean it, it is it's a romantic type thing i mean we really we we should and we do cherish those experiences but you know i it's just on a vacation <laughs> yeah exactly i mean if, if i want a vacation i'd take a vacation <laughs> When I was in Hanoi, I actually walked so much that I, I ruined a pair of suit pants. That's how <laughs> it, it's, uh, I mean, it, it is, it's, it's work. And you want to maximize every minute that you're there because it's, you know, there's so much you want to get done. Um, yeah. you know, you and it was hot there, oh. uh, humid, you know, you're going into different climates too, in different time zones, you know, so um, you have to put your physical self away you know, and that requires a lot of discipline because in Hanoi, it was hot and humid. And um, I'll tell you, you, you had to figure out what, what to do with, with your clothes when, you know, you went through that kind of humidity um, from that into the air conditioning and then back again. And um, so there, there's a lot to contend with sometimes, you know, uh, that you don't think about uh, on these train missions, but you have to look fresh and quick crisp and on, you know, on your feet. Um, so you have to put that aside, but yeah, yes, you're right about that. You know, the time change in the climates also, and the food is different. So you have to be able to take all that in and, and put your physical self aside, you know, and keep going. So, yeah. You know, one thing I want to lift up uh, to you and to Secretary Evnen, I, this is direct feedback I've heard from some of my counterparts in other states. Um, there is actually a little bit of envy um, from some of our surrounding states about how well Nebraska works together, not just commodity uh, boards. I mean, we work very closely with corn and wheat and soybeans and pork and beef and everybody else that we can. Um, but also from a governmental standpoint, uh, in the sense of the Secretary of State and the governor's office and um, other states don't have governors necessarily that are lead, leading trade missions. They don't have Secretary of State's offices. Um, that are, are focused on working together with, uh, you know, primary industries. Um, and it's not just ag in Nebraska, it's, uh, you know, industrial as well. Mm -hmm. But they don't have that kind of coordination. And that's something that we do really, really well in Nebraska, which is another reason to locate a business here, by the way. That's true. That foreign direct investment is so important to our state. And um, when, you are, when you are overseas, you have to remember that you do represent the entire state. And you also represent America. You know, so um, that's important to remember. And, and you know, what I noticed about Nebraska is that, you know, we have access to our government and we have access to our state senators. We have access to the departments, the agencies. 
um, at the top level, we have access to our governor, you know, um, and that's not true of every state. Uh, you know, you have access to the secretary of state. Um, it's just, it is not true of every state. You don't have access to your governor like you do here. Um, you you are, are not um, as involved um, at that level because you're you're prohibited, you know, in in access in in other states, but not in Nebraska, mm -hmm. which is really interesting about our state, you know. Um, and also, uh, most people know everybody else here. You know, we are family, so we have learned to work together. You know, you have some of your family drama to work out, but at the end of the day, you know, you're all family. What I always tell folks is uh, the great thing about doing things in Nebraska is if you don't know the right person, you know the person who knows the right <laughs> person. Um, and that makes it really easy to collaborate, whether that's with the university system, whether that's through, you know, again, you know, working with the governor's office or secretary of state, or even the congressional delegation. I mean, um, you know, they're all really very accessible. Um, if you don't have the connection, you can find somebody who has the connection that can help get you in there. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it's just it's just a crazy thing. And, and being from Nebraska, I'm from Nebraska. You know, you kind of take it for granted. Um, but the reality is there's a lot of opportunity if you know how to navigate the system here. And it's really not hard to navigate the system. Um, so we've got about you know, five or 10 minutes left. Um, okay. Keep these about an hour. And we haven't touched on something I really, really Good want. <laughs> Which is, which is your experience, um, you know, working in refugee communities. Um, I think that's a unique thing. I know I don't know enough about it. I'd love to hear more about it. I bet the folks at home would too. Well, um, I've been on a couple of trade missions. I, went, I was in Turkey and uh, this was at the time of the Syrian war. Um, and there was a huge migration of people coming through Turkey, up through Greece, you know, into Macedonia. I mean, just as far as the horizon as far as the horizon could go. And, um, you know, these people are professionals. They're attorneys, they're business owners, they're dentists, doctors, you know, they're, they're not, they've left everything except for their family and their clothes. And um, a, lot of, a lot of the people that are migrating, they do end up in refugee camps and, um, and life changes for them very, very drastically from where they were in their own country. And um, a lot of these refugee camps, you know, are in need of food aid. And, and it's a growing need also in many countries that, that uh, are in environmental crisis or in conflicts, you know, right now, there's a growing need for food aid in so many countries um, in the globe uh, currently. And the big problem in refugee camps is one, that there is a, a huge, um, number of children that are stunted and wasting and uh, women who are iron deficient. So I'm working with the university to try to improve a better food aid product. Um, we have a product that's called CSB's corn soy blend right now. It's kind of a porridge product and um, I'm trying to improve that to address stunting and wasting in children. And you know, when you think about stunting, you think about the height, you know, and this is true. I mean, they they only grow to a certain height and that's classified as stunting. But stunting also affects um, brain development. Uh, the, it, the brain doesn't develop properly. So uh, the, the um, level of, 
of entrance into education or even the economy as far as jobs is very low because you know there's not brain development that is associated with stunting. Um, the other uh, big challenge in stunting is that premature death. Um, so you know stunting is a problem not just uh, at birth, which it often happens in the womb because the mother is not getting proper nutrition in refugee camps, but it's a lifelong um, problem for, for those who are affected by stunting. And I've been in some countries where you see it a lot. Um, I saw it a lot in Tanzania and Congo, um, some, some in Ethiopia also, um, Uganda. So it's, it's very prevalent in those countries where people have had to seek shelter in refugee camps. So I'm working with the university to, um, to improve the food aid product. Um, also, I've met a lot of uh, POVs. Um, those are independent private organ volunteer organizations that go into countries and they distribute food aid. A lot of them distribute food, food aid through lunch programs. And a lot of these kids, that's their incentive to go to school in the first place, you know, and, and uh, because they get lunch um, at the schools. Uh, so we're working together with some of the POVs in, in the countries that, that, um, that aren't necessarily refugee camps, but in communities where there is a, a food shortage um, or the children are, they eat last, the women eat last, you know, so there's not an ample um, source of, of nutrition. So there's a lot of malnutrition in, in many communities. So the school lunch programs try to address that as well. Um, it's, uh, it's my passion, food aid is my passion. Uh, I think that it's the growing number of people that are, are subject to malnutrition right now, their, their nutritional needs are not being met. And I think that there's a popular trend towards plant-based proteins um, because they're easily digestible, especially for small children and toddlers and for women who are pregnant or lactating. Uh, so we're trying to work with some of those plant-based proteins to, um, to add a better value to the food aid product. So that's where I'm at right now. Um, I'm going to try to initiate a, a food aid trade mission sometime, perhaps next year. You know, we'll, we'll be in front of the World Food Program who works a lot with USAID uh, in food aid. Um, two of the countries that are most in need currently um, because of crisis is um, Yemen and Afghanistan. Um, they're, they're very much uh, suffering there, especially in Yemen. It's hard to get food aid in there, but you do have agencies that are successful and moving some of the food aid to those populations that are most in need. Um, we, um, we have an abundance here, and I really believe that Nebraska can produce a food aid product that will meet the needs of those who are suffering. And I believe that there's a blessing in it for our state um, by, by becoming involved in food aid and sharing the abundance that we have here with those who are in need. You know, one thing, uh, some overlap here, we are actually trialing two new high protein sorghum lines at the TAPS program in North Platte this year. Um, and I actually towards aquaculture feed production, but 
Um, also, you know, again, the product that we'd like to get in the USAID food basket is also a dehydrated, it's like an extruded and then dehydrated um, uh, porridge type product uh, used in sorghum. And what we know from, from reports from the U.S. Grains Council is that the protein has actually um, increased year over year for the last 20 plus years. And that's, that makes a really important impact when you're talking about those plant-based proteins. And that we, a lot of Nebraskans might hear plant-based protein and then think of, you know, the, the attack on the beef industry. Yeah. Uh, the reality is that there's room for both in, in the marketplace. And I think there always will be. Well, it can be stored, you know, and, and it's sustainable also. You know, you can replenish the supply, the supply and, it, and it can be stored over a long period of time. So it's very easily uh, shipped and stored. And, and that's and, and again, there's there's room for everything, really. But plant-based protein tends to be a lower cost, also. Right. So so economically, you know, to meet the needs of those who are in need, um, it, it is a, it's a it's a vital um, source of protein. You know that uh, you know we have meat here in our country, and so we we do both. And and of course, I you know, I love my steak. So don't get me wrong. But uh, as far as being able to feed populations that are malnourished, it's a, it's a good way to go. The only thing holding us back in that process right now is, frankly, we need a processor uh, mm -hmm. who can be reliable. We can show USAID and World Food Program uh, that we not only have a product, which has been developed actually through Kent State, um, but that we've got actually a processor that can meet the contracts and things like that that yeah. they'll need. And what's cool about that for Nebraska agriculture is, you know, let's face it, um, those are new markets and new people that we can expose to Nebraska agriculture, which means, you know, other venues for farmers uh, mm -hmm. products out there. And, uh, you know, so that's something that definitely we're thinking about. Um, we've got a couple of processors that um, we're, we're working with uh, through the process to see about getting operations located here. Um, so stay tuned on that. But that's the only reason we've pumped the brakes on that process right now um, is because we want to make sure we have all of our ducks in a row before we go in front of, uh, you know, in front of the USAID uh, folks. So, Absolutely. Um, I think we can do it right here. We have the transportation, you know, we have interstate, rail, waterways, um, and then, and we have agriculture. So, and I think agriculture will be in, the, in Nebraska for a very long time. So it's good to diversify. Well, Cindy, this has been absolutely great. Um, I do have to cut this off here pretty quick. Um, YouTube only allows me to post a, a video of up to an hour. I've learned that the hard way. <laughs> Having worked in politics, I can definitely chew up an hour pretty easily. <laughs> but uh, this has been really a pleasure. And it's, it's a uh, pleasure to get to work with you. Um, I, I really hope that folks that are watching this gain a new appreciation for all the important work that you and Secretary Evanen do uh, for the state. It's uh, really inspiring uh, to be able to spend time with you. Thank you, Nate. Uh, you know, I'm honored. I, I'm honored that you asked me and, uh, you know, it's just really great to have this conversation with you. Um, thank you very much for inviting me along on the ride with you. I really appreciate that. Well, you're quite welcome. So <laughs>